Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I pray that you'll hear the invitation of God to join in His mission in this message. As we continue our series exploring how the people of God discerned His invitation, we turn to the example of Jehoshaphat, King of Judah, and the people of Jerusalem who waited for God under immense pressure. The Bible reading this morning comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 1 to 4 and in the NIV it's subtitled Jehoshaphat defeats Moab and Ammon. After this the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Menites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat a vast army is coming against you from Edom from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. Alarmed, Joseph resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Thank you, Sue. Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning, both uh, in the building and online. Trust that you've stayed mostly dry or are enjoying the dry, perhaps, as the case might be, but uh, it's good to have you with us. We are continuing a series entitled Discerning the Invitation of God Together, uh, and uh, we started last week by looking at the apostles as they selected a 12th man uh, for their little apostolic group, uh, and uh, drew your attention to the fact that in that instance, it was not a command of God that caused them to, to turn to him and seek his guidance. It was, in fact, their own discerning in the midst of the situation they found themselves in through reflection on scripture and lots and lots of prayer and consideration of their purpose that they needed to appoint someone someone to that position. The, the situation that we find in this passage in 2 Chronicles 20 is very, very different, isn't it? Only the four verses that so far to kind of go from, as Roxanne said, I will be kind of mentioning more of the text as we go along. But there are a couple things in this text that at one level make it sound like any other biblical story, right? I don't know what you were thinking as it was being read, uh, but it kind of reads like any biblical story, right? People of God are in trouble, they turn to the Lord, and, well, we hope in the rest of the passage they rescue them. Right? Sounds pretty standard, right? You kind of come across that general narrative arc a little bit in Scripture, and you'd be right. That's a fairly common story structure for what we find. But there are a couple of features of this text that make this story, this little account, utterly unique in the Old Testament. The first of them has to do with the crisis that they're facing. Uh, the problem with geography in the Old Testament is it's meaningless to us, right? I mean, how many of you know where En Gedi is in relationship to Jerusalem? Oh, three of you. Okay, there you never mind. Apparently, it's really simple, so talk to them afterwards, right? Very few of us know where En Gedi is in relationship to Jerusalem, right? Let alone what the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Muonites, who end up being the Edomites later on, what do they have to do with anything? But here's the important gist of it. Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah and Jerusalem are in, the, their kingdom is on the western side of the Jordan River to the, and, and the northern part of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites are on the eastern and kind of southern sides of the Dead Sea and have allied themselves together and are coming up around the corner. In En Gedi, they are about 80 kilometers away from the gates of Jerusalem. They have to follow a bit of a dogleg going up the valley, the Jordan Valley, and then into Jerusalem. But they're about 80 kilometers away. 
And just the kind of the, the context that we find ourselves in, all of a sudden having a massive amount of troops only 80 kilometers away means a little bit more than it did a couple of weeks ago for us. I don't know how fast uh, armies moved in the ancient Near East, but they're only days away from being confronted with this alliance, which means that their response is quite remarkable, isn't it? They hear that there is this overwhelming force coming towards them. They're already at En Gedi. They're 80 kilometers away, 10 days, 14 days away. I don't know, it beats me. Not very far away at all. And instead of scrambling to get their military together, instead of scrambling to send a delegation to sue for peace, instead of scrambling to call on their allies, they actually say, we're going to take some time to fast. We're going to all show up in Jerusalem and we're going to wait on the Lord. It's a pretty remarkable response, isn't it? Under pressure. I don't know if you follow team sports, you know, rugby or uh, soccer or I don't know, ice hockey, just as a random illustration. Uh, But the difference between the lower levels and the higher levels of those sports is the ability to deal with the speed of the game. I don't know how many of you have kind of played at a lower level of some sport and then eventually played at a higher level. It's always the speed. And the greatest sports, uh, the greatest athletes are the ones who seem to have an unbelievable amount of time, even under pressure. Right? It's the halfback who for some reason just seems to have all day to make the pass. It's the defender who never is out of position and always seems to have time regardless of how much pressure is on them. It's this kind of component that we find here. A group of people under incredible pressure who seem to have all this time to waste waiting on the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? But the second thing that I think sets us apart and makes it utterly unique is the involvement of the people. Now, the people obviously are in the story, but they very rarely take such a center stage as they do in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In fact, most of the story that we find in 1 and 2 Chronicles, and the same is true in 1 and 2 Kings, the history of the people of Israel is told primarily through the lens of the activity of the kings. What the kings did is determinative of kind of how the people went. And very rarely do we hear much at all about the people. In fact, one of the kind of the, the, the um, refrains, one of the criticisms that keeps being brought up about the kings is that they would often, even if they were godly and faithful, that they would not destroy the high places, the shrines where the people would worship both the Lord but also the gods of the surrounding nations. The kings neglected their duty to keep people faithful to the Lord. And so it's quite odd in Scripture to actually have this much emphasis on the people. Jehoshaphat wants to inquire of the Lord, declares a fast, and then all the people doubly want to seek the Lord. They want to seek the Lord, and we're told that they did indeed come from all over to seek the Lord. The author wants us to notice what they have done. As we kind of will get to the rest of the story, but it's the people who stand and wait to hear from the Lord, and it's the people who march out, and it's the people who rejoice when God rescues them. The people play a really important role, a strangely prominent role, given the rest of Scripture. And it led me to ask, kind of, why, why or what happened to allow this to be the case? Like, what happened so that in this moment of incredible pressure, the people gathered together and were able to wait on the invitation of God? What happened? 
And my eye was drawn to the very first two words in chapter 20. After this. So I thought, okay, something has happened prior to this that might be important. Now, I've probably taken a little bit of liberty with how much before should count, but I kept going back and back and back and ended up in, in 2 Chronicles 16. So we're going to go back a few stories, but let me try to kind of give you the, uh, the, the seeds that bear fruit in chapter 20. So if you were to just go back and just pay attention to what happens in the four stories prior, this is what you'd find. In chapter 19, Jehoshaphat, the king, sends out and establishes judges in the land. Uh, these are not the judges of the book of Judges who are primarily military leaders. These are judicial judges. They are meant to be leading people in how to follow the ways of the Lord, uh, in how to live appropriately, and where there were conflicts or um, uh, disagreements, uh, they were to judge appropriately. They were to be impartial and not to accept bribes. And we're told at the very start of the, that section in verse 4 of chapter 19 that Jehoshaphat went out and turned their hearts back to the Lord, which is kind of striking that the people whose hearts had been turned to the Lord, a group of people who had been equipped to follow the Lord more effectively, are the ones who show up in Jerusalem in the very next chapter. But if you go back one more story, you find, I think, an interesting prequel to Jehoshaphat's decision to establish judges, and that is a rebuke from a prophet. In chapters uh, 18... In 19, uh, Jehoshaphat allies himself with the house of Israel. He's the first of the four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, after the ten tribes of the north had seceded, to have an alliance with those kings. But of all the kings to choose, he chose to ally himself with the house of Ahab. And if you know the story of the kingdom of Israel, Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel. Not because his foreign policy was lousy or his economics weren't great or he wasn't great at warfare. No, for the very simple reason, which is the lens all scripture is told through, that he was unfaithful to the Lord. And not just unfaithful in the sense of, oh yeah, I don't really care too much for the Lord. He was actively suppressing and destroying the worship of the Lord. His wife Jezebel went around killing the prophets of the Lord. And after a particular event in which Jehoshaphat worked with Ahab, he is confronted by a prophet named Jehu, son of Hanani, who basically says to him, what are you thinking? Seriously, you're going to ally yourself with the house of Ahab? And that is what immediately precedes Jehoshaphat returning home and going out and turning the hearts of the people back to the Lord. What do you think led him to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord after he had been rebuked. Like it sounds like a soft heart to me, doesn't it? Someone who has been called out by a prophet who said, you claim to follow the Lord and then you go and ally yourself with someone who is as opposed to the Lord as you can be. What are you thinking? And Jehoshaphat, his, his actions suggest that he's gone fair call. That he has himself turned back to the Lord. Because when you go to the section prior to his alliance with Ahab, you find the account of the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign. He began to reign, we're told, in chapter 22 of 1 Kings, when he was 35. And he devoted his heart to following the Lord. 
And he sent out his officials to teach the people. And he sent out Levites to teach the law of the Lord. So the people were taught in their towns. And this is completely unique. You never find any other king doing this. That's how his, that's how his, his reign began. Teaching the people to obey the Lord, to be faithful to him, to understand what it looked like to live in relationship with the Lord. Then he kind of fell away for a while. And then when he was rebuked, he returns again to those basic principles. Which leads to the fourth story back. And again, I may have stretched the after this part. But the fourth story goes back to his father's reign. His father was the king named Asa, a godly man who unfortunately did not end well. Because in chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles, his father Asa... Uh, When Jehoshaphat was 29, so old enough to remember, his father Asa was confronted with pressure from the north. Kings of Israel were basically fortifying all of their territory along the Judean border. And uh, Asa sent a bunch of gold and silver to the king of Aram to the north to say, hey, how about you be allied with me and put some pressure on Israel? And the king of Aram, more than happy to expand his territory for the sake of his friendship with Judah, attacks Israel. Israel leaves the fortifications alone. Uh, Asa goes up, they nick all the stone, and they build up their own side of the border. Clever. Until he is confronted by a prophet, Jehu's father, Hanani. And Hanani basically says to Asa, what are you doing not trusting the Lord? Seriously, you're just going to go and ally yourself with the king of Aram? You have done a foolish thing. And he says these words. You might be familiar with these words. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And Asa's response is interesting because he loses it. He is enraged that someone would dare to call him to account. He imprisons the prophet and begins to oppress the people of God. And we're told that when he dies, he dies of some disease of the feet. I have no idea what disease of the feet can kill you. And really, if you know, I don't want to know, really. But he has a disease of the feet and we're told that he did not inquire of the Lord, only the doctors. A hard heart you'd say. And Jehoshaphat, who was 29 at the time, then becomes king. And what he demonstrates is that he has learned from his father's failures, wouldn't you say? And it strikes me as all of this background kind of ends up being the seeds which bears fruit in chapter 20. Because in chapter 20, after Jehoshaphat has been purposely um, building up the people of Israel, where he's been purposely returning them to, uh, to, to the Lord to make sure that they know what it means, when he has demonstrated that he has a soft heart even to a rebuke from the Lord, they face an enormous crisis. And with the sound of marching feet just days away, They do not scramble the military. They do not form a new alliance. They do not call on their friends. Instead, he says, we are going to fast and meet me in Jerusalem. We are going to inquire of the Lord. And the people who have been equipped and taught to do the same arrive. It is remarkable. Under pressure, faithful, non-anxious presence. 
you would never know. In fact, you read this, it doesn't sound like they're under any pressure at all, but they are. It's remarkable, isn't it? And then watch what happens. This is picking up the story. If you're thinking, oh great, that's just the introduction. No, we're nearly through. <laughs> Verse five, Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if a calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's a remarkable prayer. Reflecting on the character of God, reflecting on the promises of God, all the stories of the law that they would have heard. Reflecting on what God had promised and what God had commanded and what had happened and reflecting on the building of the temple. If you read through First Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 6 and Solomon's prayer of dedication, he actually talks about when we're in need, we will pray and you will hear us. It's all kind of here. And then I think there's perhaps the most important verse, verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord and waited. Do you hear the marching feet? They stood before the Lord and waited. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you and you have promised that your eyes, your eyes are always roaming throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are committed to you, that you might strengthen them. I want to know how long they waited. Because it sounds like they waited five seconds and I doubt it. But as they wait... The Lord speaks. And the Spirit of the Lord stirs up a fellow named Jehaziel, who basically says, Folks, God's got you. This is his battle, not yours. You don't have to do anything. Take up your positions tomorrow, and God will fight for you. He gives no sign, no guarantee, nothing apart from the word. But what do we read? Well, they worship the Lord and then the next day they go out early in the morning. Wonderful little time indicator there. Remember when Abraham was told by God to take his son that he loved and sacrifice him? 
Remember that story? One of the most telling things about that story is that Abraham obeys early the next morning. Immediately. And out they go. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you'll be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you'll be successful. And after consulting the people, which never happens in Scripture in this sort of a context, they appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. If you read through Psalm 136, it's a psalm that reflects on that refrain over and over again. It's a beautiful corporate expression, which I think works perfectly here. That the leader of worship would say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And the people would respond, for his love endures forever. He created the entire world. His love endures forever. He rescued us from Egypt. His love endures forever. From Sihon and Og of the Amorites, his love. See how it fits here? as the people all go out, and as they go out, God is at work. He turns the Moabites against the Ammonites and everyone against the Edomites, because everyone hates the Edomites. And when the people of Judah, not the army, when the people of Judah arrive, there's nothing left to do but pick up the plunder and go home. It's a remarkable little story. And it's an excellent reminder, an excellent reminder that God is able and willing to save. But it also presents for us, I think, a really important lesson about discerning the invitation of God together. And that is that there are skills that can be learned. There's a way to prepare our hearts so that in the moment... When the moment comes to hear from the voice of God that we are actually ready to do so. Jehoshaphat and the people, they put into practice the necessary skills of paying attention to his word, of knowing his laws, of living faithfully. So in the moment, under pressure, they were able to wait, to have time and to be willing to wait as long as it took for the Lord to speak to them. And that is incredibly encouraging, wouldn't you think? I think as in our society, I think it'd be safe to say that for people of faith, we can sometimes feel under a little bit of pressure. And we are called not to be discouraged and not to fear, but instead to wait upon our God too. But to do that requires practice. It requires listening to rebuke. It requires focusing on the word of God. It it requires us to be living out what we claim to live out. And for us as a community of faith, as we embark on this process of discernment, I think it's particularly important. We have a day set aside, 17th of September. If you haven't yet put it in your diary, I would encourage you to do so. The day when we will gather before the Lord and hopefully he will reveal himself, possibly maybe through a prophecy. I think it'll be a little bit more staid than that. But what are we going to do now to plant the seeds that will bear fruit on that day? Because if we show up having done none of the groundwork and just hope that God shows up, 
because we've got a few hours, so the sooner the better, God. You know, just... We need to be sowing the seeds now of the harvest we want to reap then. And that's true in our individual lives and it's true in our corporate life. So can I encourage you again, and to some degree, this relatively lengthy story has a simple application for us. Can I encourage you to pray as best you can and engage with scripture as best you can to engage with the people of God as best you can to live out as faithfully as you can your commitment to follow Jesus because it's in that activity those simple day-to-day activities that we end up sowing the seeds that will bear a harvest when we are under pressure when we need to hear from God, the the things that we engage in as individuals and as a community of faith will be the things that will allow us, all the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, to stand before the Lord and wait for his word and for his rescue. It's a powerful example for us of focusing on preparing for the future. And I hope that for each of us, as individuals, as families, as a community of faith, this might spur us forward, that we might indeed be ready to hear from God when we need to hear from him. It's as simple and as complicated as that. So let me take an opportunity to pray for us as a community of faith, and Rox will wrap up our service. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, we thank you that following you does include some practice. That there are things that we can be doing, that we can be watching our hearts, that they might remain soft before you, that we can be in your word and at prayer and seeking to live as faithfully as we can, not just for the moment, but because of what that does long term for us. And I pray that for each of us, that this example of Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah might spur us on to continue the simple practices in our day-to-day lives that will enable us to respond with, well, with patience and with courage and with faith when you act on our behalf. I pray for us as individuals and for us as a community of faith that we, we might indeed be sowing the seeds that will bear a harvest In the future, for us as a community of faith, I think particularly over the course of this year as we seek to hear your invitation for us over the next several years, I pray that we would be putting the work in now that would bear fruit then. And that for each of us, as we seek to follow faithfully after you, we would be doing much the same. That we might be those who are able to respond to anything that we face with a faithful commitment, a quiet, waiting for your word and for your activity on our behalf. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together both online and on site. We thank you that you unite us by your Holy Spirit and ask that you would continue to move us forward as a people of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name.
Jehoshaphat and his people waited for the Lord in a crisis rather than scrambling to solve their problems. This ability to wait under pressure was developed in the normal rhythms and patterns of following God. The seeds sown in the everyday situations bore fruit in a crisis. As individuals in a community of faith, let me encourage us to do what we can in our day-to-day lives to trust the Lord so that when the moment of trouble comes, we will be able to imitate Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. Just a reminder that this series is accompanied by life group material that dives deeper into discerning the invitation of God together. There are also discipleship menus you can find on our website under Next Steps and The Big Three. Our weekly podcast exploring three big questions from this sermon comes out on Wednesdays. Thanks for joining us again this week. You can join us for one of our services on site at 9.30 and 6 p.m. or online at www.gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time. God bless.